This is Trinity Western University's Chapel Podcast, where our daily chapel gatherings are captured and shared for the TWU community. Whatever your day looks like today, we're glad you're tuning in. as cool as that at all, but I'll do my best to share how I can today. Uh, We're in the Gospel of John, is what I've been told, and today we're in the Gospel of John chapter 3, which says this, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was growing around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That's God's word. Hearing that story in Mark, some of us are just now realizing that Jesus wasn't an only child, but had siblings. Jesus was an older brother. And we're left wondering, what's more concerning? The idea of Jesus being an only child or the idea of Jesus being an older brother, depending on your experience personally, of course. And the story goes that there's a Hebrew school teacher who was discussing the Ten Commandments with a class of five and six-year-olds. After explaining the commandment to honor your father and your mother, she asked the class if there was a commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and our sisters. And without missing a beat, a boy in the front row shut up his hand and answered, Thou shalt not kill. Family can be tricky. And this is one of those stories about Jesus in which we're thrown for a bit of a loop. In many stories, we find ourselves thinking, Well done, Jesus. Now that's the kind of thing I can get behind. And usually that has something to do with him showing an above-average capacity for compassion, or when he's telling off a bunch of religious leaders for being hypocritical or cruel. But then we hear a story like this, and we think, hang on a moment, did Jesus just tell his mother to get lost? And we realize that we're not always dealing with a Jesus who plays by our rules. This is a curious, uh, a quick little scene in Mark, which is like a lot of the rest of that gospel, and we're left perhaps with more questions than we are with answers. My friend Kelly, who's a local vicar in the area, likes to say that every time we draw a line for God that we think he won't cross, we turn around and find Jesus on the other side of it. Mark's gospel can feel a little bit like that. It doesn't tell us a story that we can see coming. It doesn't give us easy answers, even if we'd like them. We're hearing a strange story We're meeting a unique character, a Jesus who is like us, we could say, one of our siblings, but at the same time, totally unlike us. What kinds of questions does the story ask us if we're listening today? I think it asks us at least two questions. The first is, how much room does God make for us? How much room does God make for us? Growing up, I was very welcome uh, in my friend's home, and we would swim in their pool and play in their basement, but they also had a really nice boat, 
and uh, they'd take it to places like Desolation Sound in the summer. But even though they had the room on the boat, and no, many, no matter how many hints that I dropped, I was never once invited on one of those trips. It was pretty clear that those trips were for family only. At some point, with every kind of group or family, we brush up against this kind of closed circle, as C.S. Lewis called it. We find ourselves on the outside looking in, or maybe on the inside looking out. But that doesn't seem to be the case with the kind of community that Jesus creates. He's not organizing another closed circle or a community uh, instead drawn together by God's love, rallying around God's plans, or in his words here, God's will. The community that Jesus makes possible through his own life isn't tribal or cultural, and within it, nobody gets special treatment. A professor of mine used to say, Jesus is the great equalizer. At first glance, this story might seem like it's about exclusion, but really, it's about a kind of radical inclusion. I like to say that Jesus is just God's heart walking around outside of God's chest. And the story that we see, the heart that we see in this story, is not a heart that excludes, but a heart that makes room. This is a story that reminds us that Jesus invites everyone as he looks around the room and calls the assorted rabble around him family. So this story reminds us that we needn't have a kind of narrow history in order to belong with Jesus. God doesn't need to check us out on Ancestry.ca before loving us. Doesn't demand that our virginity is intact or our addictive tendencies are tidied up or our GPAs hover above 3.2 before letting us in the door. That's the kind of family that many of us, if we're honest though, are unfamiliar with. Because that word family isn't one that we easily associate with generous, self-giving love. But that's what we've been brought together to discover. Jesus makes us a family, calls us siblings, and offers us the chance to learn to love how God loves in this new kind of household. I recently heard a young woman in church tell a story about how she was sitting in a row in church all by herself in a difficult time in her life and feeling embarrassed and alone. And just as the sermon began, she felt a tap on her shoulder by the man sitting behind her with his family. He said to her, come and sit with us. But not wanting to get up and to cause a scene, she declined. A moment later, he tapped her on the shoulder again and said, just so you know, you're not alone. She said she began to tear up, and she knew in that moment that God was speaking to her through that man. In the family of Jesus, we're not alone. Maybe we need to say that to one another more often. Maybe we need to find creative or even ordinary ways of making that clear in the communities in which we find ourselves. The second question I think this story asks is, how much room are we making for God? If the first question is, how much room does God make for us? The second question is, how much room are we making for God? As I said earlier, this story seems a little bit harsh, and there's really no point in trying to soften 
what Jesus is getting at. This is another scene in Mark's gospel which shows us an uncompromising Jesus. Christ is this startling character because he doesn't read as someone who's out to please people. Of course, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about his mother and his siblings or that they're not welcome into this new community. It's simply that Jesus is clear about his family ties and which family takes precedence. It seems that no one cuts in line ahead of the one that Jesus calls Father. Nothing supersedes Jesus' dedication to letting God's imagination for humanity unfold through his life. As we see towards the end of Mark's gospel, this has dramatic ramifications. So in Mark's biography of Jesus, we see a character who, who becomes increasingly isolated as Jesus alone is the one who lives aligned with God right up into the mouth of death itself. Jesus is someone so, we could say, tuned into God that his choices often shock and confuse the people around him. We might remember Isaiah's words, a significant influence in Mark's gospel. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says God. So this story asks those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus how closely we're willing to follow. It asks us about our allegiances and priorities. It asks us which family we think we belong to and if our lives are fleshing out God's life in the world or not. This story exposes, in a way, our own double vision as we meet a character so relentlessly committed to a single vision of humble love, no matter the cost. We've just entered recently the season of Lent, and roughly translated, Lent means 40. It's the season that leads us to Easter, and it's based on Jesus' 40 days of prayer and preparation in the wilderness. Lent is about heart work, not hard work, but heart work. At Lent, we're asking to be lovingly refined. We're giving God the chance, the time, and the space to, to mend, to restore, to realign us. Like Jesus in the wilderness, at Lent, we go into desolate spaces, spaces free from noise and distraction, spaces that evoke a dependence on God. Another story goes that a young doctor had just opened office and felt really excited about it. His secretary told him that there was a man, his first patient, who was here to see him. And the young doctor told the secretary to send the man in. And pretending to be a very busy doctor, he picked up the phone just as the man came in, pretending he was on a call. Yes, that's right. The fee is $200. Yes, I'll expect you at 10 past 2. All right, no later. I'm very busy, you know. He hung up and he turned around to the man waiting. May I help you? No, said the man. I'm just here to install the phone. At Lent, we stop pretending that we're too busy for God. And it's been said that at Lent, we put something down in order to pick something up. Maybe putting down our phones in order to read scripture maybe missing a meal 
in order to pray. Of course, when we think about putting something down and picking something up, we might also think of Jesus' words, take up your cross and follow me. So Lent is also this time in the Christian calendar year of recommitment. If we've somehow loosened our grip on the cross, let some distance grow between ourselves and Jesus. Let our ties to other things supersede our family ties to God. Lent is a time of remembering our adoption, remembering that song that we just sang, that I am a child of God, and giving ourselves over again to the God of humble love. So those are the two questions, at least the two questions that emerge from this story when I consider it. How much room does God make for us? And how much room are we making for God? I have two friends at church, and one is part of the Kwantlen Nation. He's an Aboriginal support worker in a local school. And he's pretty firm on his views of colonization and sovereignty and truth and reconciliation. And he's only recently felt comfortable setting foot in a church, and he tells us that he's been pleasantly surprised, which is encouraging. My other friend is a director for a refugee settlement society here in the valley, but in a former life, he actually was butler to Queen Elizabeth II, took care of her dogs, waited on her hand and foot. And so you can imagine that both of my friends have had radically different histories and different and unique understandings of that word sovereign. They come at it from different perspectives. And yet, they've found themselves together and joining in with a family that claims to belong to Jesus. If we've signed up with Jesus, that's where we find ourselves too. We're drawn together, welcomed by God in order to learn how to welcome one another. We're learning how to love how God loves. We're learning how to make room. And maybe that's at least part of what Jesus meant when he said, these are the people who are doing God's will. One of my favorite poets is G.M. Hopkins, and when we're faced with a scripture like this of recommitting ourselves to God in a sense, I find these words encouraging. It's a simple prayer, so let me close with it. God, lover of souls, swaying considerate scales, complete your creature, dear, where it fails, being mighty a master, being a father and fond. To that we can all say in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Bless you. Have a great rest of your Monday. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that this message has challenged, encouraged, and inspired you as we continue learning and growing together in discipleship to Jesus. Every week, you'll find new chapel messages on our channel from local and international speakers ranging in diverse and engaging topics. So go ahead and subscribe for the latest of what's going on in chapel. Much love and happy listening.